Well, good morning, Grace Community Church. Greetings in the name of the one who has the power to redeem. I could not think of a more fitting declaration and song than Grace just sang. You alone have the power to redeem. That is where we will begin, and God willing, that is where we will end. This morning's message is designed to call your attention to the one and only who has the power to rescue, restore, to enable the depraved and those enslaved in darkness to enjoy life, freedom, love, and light. I'd like you to turn with me to the Revelation chapter 12 before we head to Mark's gospel chapter 5. I want to give a little theological context to what we're going to study today, darkness, depravity, and deliverance. The genesis for this was the consequence of hearing our pastor preach October the 9th on the doctrine people hate, the doctrine of depravity. And I was out of town, I heard it live streamed, and uh, I was impacted by the profundity of it and the reality of that declaration, unwilling and unable. Because of the fall of Adam, the damage to my humanity was so great, there's nothing in me that enables me, no desire alive in me to do good, seek God. I am unwilling and I am unable. Absent his sovereign, pursuing, redeeming grace, I am helpless and hopeless, dead in trespasses and sins, governed as a a disobedient child under the enemy's power in my depravity. I wanted to add to that perspective what is not the hated doctrine of depravity, but what I'm going to argue is the neglected or overlooked doctrine of depravity amplified by the enemy. Our problem in our humanity is not just our depravity, if that were not enough of a challenge. But that depravity in our humanity is often amplified by the God of this world, our enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The reason, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, we put on the full armor of God. The reason we receive strength from God, be strong in the Lord, and, and function in the power of His might, is because we have a supernatural enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against powers and authorities and spiritual wickedness in high places. This world is governed by the God of darkness. This world is influenced not just by the fall of Adam, but by the fall of Satan. As a matter of fact, 1 John 5 says, We know that we are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I often think that because some exaggerate and exploit the power of darkness and demonic activity, in other words, responsible for nearly everything. There's a tendency to react and make the devil and the demonic and the the world of the fallen host not responsible for anything. It's all or nothing. And the biblical revelation would declare that we are not only challenged by the fall of Adam, we are challenged by the fall of Satan. And I want you to look with me at Revelation chapter 12, and um, I should warn you, this was a two-part message, once upon a time, and I'm trying to condense it into one. And so I'm going to invite you to look later at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, because there is a reflection of the fall of Lucifer, the bright one, the son of the morning, who aspired to be like God, to ascend above the clouds, to sit in the place of God, and he was cast out. 
Ezekiel 28, the anointing cherub in the presence of God, sealed in perfection, beautiful beyond measure, blameless until unrighteousness was found in him. Ezekiel 28 describes one who was in Eden, who was in the presence of God, on the mountain of God, who fell and was thrust out because he was lifted up in pride. Unrighteousness was found in him. And Ezekiel says internal violence originated in him. And you're going to feel the flavor of that in the text that we endeavor to unpack today. But I want to call your attention to Revelation chapter 12 just to punctuate a biblical perspective as we begin. Because we're going to talk about unclean demonic activity in the world of humanity influencing our depravity. Revelation chapter 12, 13 and 14 is a, a, a vignette, a kind of a parenthesis, a perspective parenthesis. The seventh trumpet of judgment has just sounded. The seals have been opened. The seven trumpets, the trumpets of judgment, declaring judgment in the revelation during the tribulation, have sounded. And then there's this perspective given by way of signs in the heavens, a, a, condon, a kind of a compression of history, a condensing of it, that enables perspective to be given as to what's going on during this time of great trouble. Verse 1, chapter 12, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. So sign number one involves a woman symbolizing Israel, who's going to give birth, 12 tribes, give birth to the Messiah, the son, the child. Verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, symbolic of his power and his control and his authority, worldly authority, this red dragon. Verse 4, key verse, and his tail, his symbolic tail, swept away one-third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. And she gave birth to a son. A male child, we know him as Jesus, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in the ascension to his throne. So you have the condensing of history, giving understanding as to what's going on. The red dragon hates Israel, which will give birth to his adversary, the son of Mary, the son of God, the one who would ultimately rule. And he seeks to devour the child, and he fails. The child is born. The child dies a substitutionary death and validated as acceptable to God. He's resurrected, and he ascends to the right hand of the Father. The enemy, in his thrusting out, Lucifer, the shining one, the anointed cherub, influences one-third of the angelic host. He is a star and a powerful angelic being created by God to do ministry in the presence of God, and because of the evil found in him, the pride expressed through him, and the influence of him, he, in, he is able to influence one-third of the angelic host, fallen angels, demonic spirits cast to the earth with him to do his bidding, to accomplish his work and to facilitate his work. Fallen angels, hatred for God, hatred for the people of God, hatred for the Son of God. And now recorded in this passage, verse 7, is a war, not a sign, but an actual war giving color to the reality of the great tribulation. Verse 7, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. The Bible describes the angelic host as myriads times myriads, myriads and myriads. The biggest Greek number 
times the biggest Greek number. Lots of angelic beings. And one-third of that lots is now associated with our enemy, waging war against the powers of God, the righteous angel Michael, righteous angels waging war with him, and the evil fallen dark one and his angels waging war with them. Verse 8, and they were not strong enough, the enemy angels. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. So having been thrust out as their residence, having access to heaven as an accuser of the brethren, you see it in Job where, the, where Satan comes before the presence of God and makes an accusation about the servant of God. Apparently, fallen angels have access to the heavens, but not after this war because it says in verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and with, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this is the latter part of the revelation. This is the, or the tribulation, the great tribulation, the time of great trouble. And part of the reason for that trouble is Satan has been thrown down. He no longer has access and he's enraged. And the great trouble of that season of the revelation and the tribulation is the product of his anger. And his actions are formidable and destructive as he attempts to persecute the woman who bore the child, the people of God, the people of Israel. He's enraged, verse 17, with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So these are converted during the tribulation, by giving testimony to the word of Christ, and you have this dragon, enemy, Satan, and a third of the heavenly host doing battle, enraged at the end. But today what they're doing is doing battle, not so graphically as it will be at the end, but actually in the lives of humanity. This world is governed by the God of this world. This world is governed by darkness and the prince of the power of the air. And we know very well, being taught from the scriptures of the power of human depravity and the fall of Adam in our humanity. But don't underestimate the amplifying power of the enemy, working and active in places and people through mechanisms, a cosmos, a system of the way the world works that is designed to promote his purposes, to destroy what is meant for God's glory, especially those made in his image. Biblical perspective is there is demonic darkness. 120 times in the Bible, 16 in the Old Testament, 104 times in the New Testament, 83 times in the Gospels. References to unclean spirits, demons, references to fallen angels, references in the Word of God to a reality that we need to recognize and resist. We need to be equipped and aware, alert and sensitive to the power of darkness that infects our world. There can be no denying, just knowing what we now know about our world and its function, how dark it can be. I cannot believe someone could do that. Well, maybe a human being in their depravity couldn't do that, but a human being in their depravity, amplified by the enemy, will do that. My desire today is to equip you with a recognition of the power of the enemy and the path of darkness that accelerates and escalates. Number two, to help you through one man's desperate condition to see the solution in one person, the one and only who has the power to rescue and restore. So turn with me, if you would now, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. And this is our text. I want to highlight for you in the time that we have lessons 
to be learned about depravity and the darkness because we're going to meet a man with unclean spirits, demonized man, possessed and controlled. A human being, depraved in Adam, controlled by the enemy of God and man. Secondly, we're going to find the one-of-a-kind Savior who brings deliverance. We're going to learn some lessons about the deliverer who rescues from depravity and darkness. Read with me Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. And they came, this is Jesus and his disciples, They had just crossed to the other side, verse 35, and on that day when evening had come, he said, let us go over to the other side. So they leave the multitudes. And maybe it's important to understand that all the way back in 320, chapter 3, verse 20, is the recognition that Jesus is being involved and enveloped in ongoing, relentless ministry. You have the multitudes coming so much so that in chapter 3, verse 20, when he comes home, people are gathered to the extent that they couldn't even eat a meal. So there's, there's physical fatigue. And then you have his family show up, his kinsmen, the Scripture says, and they, they say, you've lost your mind. So there's this relational uh, trauma related to the claim of his own family. They want to take custody of him because he's lost his mind, his senses. You're crazy. This is his family. And then you have the scribal leaders who say, you're possessed by the Beelzebul, the enemy, the devil. You can cast out demons because you are the leader of the demons. And then he begins to teach and he gets in the boat evening, crosses the other side, and he arrives at the other side, verse 1, and they came to the other side of the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, into the country of the Gerasenes. This is a Gentile country. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had, this man, his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and he gashing himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and he bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, that's Jesus, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he, Jesus, was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began, Jesus, to, or he, the demonized man, began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. So the demons are pleading, don't send us out from this country. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountainside, and they entreated him. Demons begging Jesus, send us into the swine so that we may enter them, the unclean desiring the unclean animals. And he gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. And those who tended them ran away, reported it to the city, and out in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed and in his right mind the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to entreat him. Now the people of the city began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed, he was begging him that he might accompany him. And Jesus did not let him, but he said to him, You go home to your people and you report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he 
had mercy on you. And he went off and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that's a 10-city region, what great thing Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. When I first began my pastoral ministry in Birmingham, we received a call at the church from a distressed husband because of his, his unmanageable wife. He asked for help, so the senior adults pastor and myself, we was only a few blocks away, we immediately went to the home, and within minutes we were there, and we walked into the room where she was with her husband, and I will never forget that next hour early on in my pastoral ministry. Because there on the bed was a woman, middle-aged, curled up in a ball, moaning and rocking, periodic wails and screaming, anguished expressions of torment and fear, fear of death, fear of attack. She cried, she sobbed, she screamed. It was heartbreaking. It was heart-wrenching. I knew her. I walked over and I gently touched her on the arm. I called her by name and she went rigid as if by an electrical shock. She sat up. She glared at me with eyes boiling with hate, with a different voice. She cursed me. She, with a murderous tone, threatened to kill me. Obviously, you're taken aback by that. I'd never witnessed that. I'm a college football player, or at least had been, standing next to a middle-aged woman without a weapon, threatening me with loss of life. It went on for over an hour. The only thing I could think to say in the midst of her threats was, you will do no such thing in the name of Jesus Christ. That's all I knew to say. It certainly seemed to diminish her energy and aggressive behavior, but she would recycle. And that went on for an hour until it seemed she got so exhausted she could continue no longer, and she simply fell asleep. And two pastors, a senior adult's one and the senior pastor, left that home frustrated and disappointed without any apparent ground gain to her benefit or her husband's. And that personal experience motivated this message because it was a desire in recognition of a reality that missionaries see all around the world. You may have been a witness to. Pastors see it. People compromised, governed to great loss, pain, and function because of the enemy, his presence and power, because of their depravity and the enemy, his presence and power. And even those who confess Christ being oppressed by that power, because the issue of oppression is not so much to do as to what your symptoms are. Possession is about control. It's about ownership. Possession is, I am owned. I am a son of disobedience. My father is the father of lies. I belong to him. Oppression has to do with the symptoms of someone who belongs to another who's given access to the enemy. Powerful, open doors. That's why Ephesians chapter 4 says, deal with your anger before the sun goes down, lest you give opportunity to the enemy. And there are avenues whereby a follower of Christ can be compromised, assaulting thoughts and powerful passions that are incongruous with their claims. Open doors. Abuse can do that. Sexual, emotional, physical abuse can open the door of the enemy's access, looking for comfort or coping. In our current culture, there's a trend towards, a trendy trend towards witchcraft. 
the idea that I will dabble in darkness, the idea that there is white magic, the idea that I can engage in certain things with curiosity. Enamored by that potential, you can be exposed through curiosity, circumstance, if you've been involved with the occult, you've been involved with false religion. See, demons are involved with those things. Extreme carnality opens the door. Perversion of online compromise of all sorts opens up a human being, unsaved to be controlled, saved to be oppressed. This is the story of ultimate possession and oppression. This is deep darkness. This is enslaving evil. And I want to argue at the outset that if the one-of-a-kind deliverer can deliver this man, he can deliver any man. He can deliver you. Because one of the lies of the enemy is there's no help for you. This is the way it will always be. Well, that's true if it's your humanity that you're counting on. But it is not true if it's Jesus you're counting on. Lessons from the dark. Lessons to be learned about darkness and demons from this man's desperate condition. I think there's principles to be learned here because we don't often recognize the power we sometimes play with or people wrestle with. Truth number one, evil fixates on death. And evil isolates from life, people and the God of life. I want you to notice verse 2. This is a man, the man who comes out to meet him is described as someone who's coming from the tombs who has his dwelling, verse 3, in the tombs. Now, the parallel passages, Luke 8 and Matthew 8, tell us that he used to live in the city. He's now living in the tombs. He used to live in a house. He no longer lives in the house. This man's struggle with evil drew, drew, drew him and drove him to a place of death. Here's the first thing you need to recognize about evil, darkness, and depravity. Depravity, when it's amplified by the enemy, is always fixated on death. It's comfortable with death. It's dark, and it likes darkness. It's why you have a culture consumed with zombies and werewolves and vampires, and there's trendy dress that looks dark and black and covered. You have a culture that has music of death, movies of death, horror that you can't hardly embrace, governed by the god of death, and evil fixates on death. The tombs are a place of death. That's where darkness takes you. And it isolates you. By antisocial behavior, Matthew 8 says he was exceedingly violent so that no one could pass by. Luke 8 says he used to wear clothes. He no longer wears clothes. Antisocial behavior that isolates him. Antisocial behavior that keeps him from being in community. He is alone and isolated from community, from family, from life. That's what evil does. And you'll see it happen in homes and in families where someone will get involved in this way and they'll isolate, they'll disconnect, they'll hibernate, and it's dark and they like the things that are dark, they like the music that's dark. That's how it works. It fixates on death and darkness. It isolates. Number two, evil escalates. Don't underestimate this. Notice what it says in verse three. No one was able to bind him, watch the word, anymore, even with a chain. Implication is once upon a time, they could bind him. Once upon a time, maybe a rope could bind him. Once upon a time, maybe a chain could bind him, but not now. None of them could bind him because evil, when it occupies a person, when they are focused on it and captured by it and the depravity unites with the enemy, it escalates. 
Evil and strength escalate. You see that in verse 9 where it says, we are many. We're legion, which is a mammoth statement. Not Mary Magdalene with seven, not the demonized child, not just a couple of demons. We are legion. The legion was 6,000. It was a formidable war force who functioned with great power, very revealing as to the power of the enemy and the power potential of the enemy for escalating challenge. Maybe he started with no demons. Then he had a demon. Now he has many demons. Over time, undealt with issues and entities can result in unmanageable circumstances and situations. So much so that nobody could control him. That's how powerful the strength of the enemy. Why? Please hear this. Evil escalates. It's not dormant. It's not static. The easiest day you will have in dealing with your enemy's power and your depravity is the first day you deal with it. Dabbling in darkness leads to dominating darkness, which is my third truth. Evil dominates. Ultimately unchecked, the escalating evil will control, dominate, and enslave. Watch the words. No one, end of verse 4, was strong enough to subdue him. He's absolutely dominated. Many had tried. Many natural options had been employed. But evil had dominated them all. Evil is stronger. Please hear this. Evil is stronger than any human solution. Self-help won't get you help. Religion and reformation. I'm talking about religion, the form of it. Not the power of it. The religious activity that cleans you up. He needs to get cleaned up. We need to get him out of there and over here. That'll fix him. Evil is stronger than any human solutions and human restrictions. Evil is stronger than any human effort. The effort of the possessed. The effort of the oppressed. The effort of the assaulted. And the efforts of those who would help them with human solutions. I think it's sobering to consider what Jesus said in Matthew 12. He says, verse 43, When an unclean spirit, a fallen angel, a demon, goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Remember the demons begging Jesus, don't send us out of this country? Perhaps in part because there's no rest without an embodied uh, vessel. A body to embody. And in the parallel passage, don't send us into the abyss. Don't send us into the place of incarceration, in darkness, in chains, until the ultimate judgment. Don't send us there. Now, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and it doesn't find it. Then it says, I will return to my house, the body from which it was evicted, from which I came, and when it comes, the demon, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order, cleaned up, reformed. And it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. That is the way... And the end of that man, Jesus says, the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That's what human effort is able to do. Clean it up, but not fill it up with life. And the enemy occupies with greater tenacity and power. Evil dominates and no human solution can address that situation. Reformation or religion, cleaning up your act, either because of self-help or religious activity, without Jesus Christ is a futile solution. As a matter of fact, it's a worst-case solution. Number four, evil torments. We cannot consider the reality, the lessons learned from the darkness and depravity without recognizing the torment and the torture 
that is involved in it. Verse 5, he's constantly, night and day, no rest, no relief, crying, deep pain, agonized, tormented screams, literally, gashing himself, self-inflicted wounds, self-contempt, I want to die, this is no way to live, this is a living death, this is torture. That's what happens. Self-contempt, self-destruction, I want to die. It's like in the Revelation when the judgments come and the people who refuse to believe and repent want the rocks to fall on them. They want to die and they can't die because so great is the torment. Revelation 9, the angel of the abyss, where those who are held in in chains before the end, they're released. Jude says they've transgressed, they've left their proper boundary, they're in a domain, they've abandoned their proper abode, they're kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, that abyss, the ones these demons did not want to be sent to, that abyss gets opened. The angel who leads the charge, the king of the demonic horde, his name in Greek, Apollyon, destruction. Abaddon in Hebrew, destroy. That's what the enemy does, and he gives power. They come out like locusts. They have tails. They sting like scorpions for five months. They torment. That's what evil does. It abuses. It uses. It damages. Dabble in it. That's the end of it. Torture, torment, and ultimate destruction. Number five, evil destroys. The broken man is a destroyed and broken down man. His is a living death. And absent a rescuer, his future is eternal death. What he's enduring is a symptom of what hell will be. It is loss, it is pain, it is regret, it is a rent and raw Fear, fury, frustration, destruction. And I want to argue that the downward spiral of the possessed man and the end of his journey is demonstrated by what happens to the swine when inhabited. I think the swine, the unclean into the unclean, is an example, a graphic example, that is meant to communicate to those who watch it, and to the man who's released from it, verifying the presence of the demonic spirits and their destructive nature. The demonstration that an evil spirit has no regard for the host. They consume. They dispose at will. And only God's grace and plan prohibit the destruction of every God-created thing. That's what Job is about. Only what restraint there is prohibits the enemy from destroying everything. His family, his goods, his health. And if given freedom, he would take his life. He is a murderer from the beginning. And that is the goal. And what happens to this swine is the manifest evidence of what the heart of the enemy and evil is. Destruction, death. When those 2,000 swine run down that hill, they are demonstrative of the nature and the malignant character of this enemy. And the reality of this enemy. It's unveiled. It's vivid. They are on display the death of this unclean, inhabited by unclean spirits, is a witness and confirmation of the enemy's evil and the enemy's goal, death and destruction. That's this man's desperate condition. Now consider the one-of-a-kind solution. Not the man's condition, but the master's capacity Lessons to be learned about deliverance from darkness. Deliverance from darkness revolves around one central 
reality. Jesus Christ, the Deliverer. Remember what Jesus said in John 10, I am the door. Verse 9, if anyone enters through me, he shall be saved, rescued, sozo, delivered. He shall go in. That has to do with the care and safety of the master's fold as the good shepherd. He shall go out, that's symbolic of provision, into the pasture. If anyone comes to me, he gets saved, he enjoys security, and he enjoys provision in the pasture. I'm the good shepherd. But there's a thief. He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. One-third of a lot are active in a militaristic, warlike campaign against the glory of God and people made in the image of God. One of the powerful movements of legion was their ability to unite as one solidifying force called a phalanx. They would come together in this this form of synergy and, and connection, and they would be a formidable juggernaut to accomplish the goal of those giving them leadership. That's the enemy. He's on the warpath. And the only one who can resist that war intention to that destruction and victory is the one you see here revealing himself as not just, I can calm the winds and waves. I can calm someone assaulted, possessed, oppressed, governed by, enslaved by, evil at this extent. A couple of things I want to highlight before we come to an end, because the heart of this is for you to understand how deep the darkness of enslaving evil and dominating depravity, and recognize the solution that we all need to offer and enjoy is found in a person, number one, the deliverer over darkness, has authority. He has sovereign authority. He has the power over the darkness and the demons, which is what you see here. Verse 7, he has authority to torment them. When the demonic possessed man comes, he bows down and he acknowledges with a verbal declaration, you are the son of the Most High God. You have authority. You have the highest supremacy. And you have the power in that authority over us, no matter how many of us, to torment us or to cast us out. Jesus Christ has authority to torment demons, verse 7, because he's the ruler over it all. He has authority to require them to identify themselves, verse 9, tell me your name. And therefore, the authority to force them to do things that are detrimental to their agenda, exposing them, making them vulnerable. Listen, the enemy can lie to you. It cannot lie to the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things about the enemy is he's a deceiver. He wants to distract and manipulate. He cannot do that with the authority of Jesus Christ. Third, Jesus has authority to send them away. Verse 10, he entreated him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And he has authority to grant them access to these unclean swine. He gave them permission, verse 13, they came out and the unclean spirits entered into the swine. On what authority? His authority. They are under it, they're controlled by it. Listen to Matthew chapter 8, when evening had come, talking about Jesus, and I want you to hear brevity, I want you to hear character and quality and no matter what. Verse 16, Matthew 8, And when evening had come, they brought to him, Jesus, many who were demon-possessed. So you have a lot of these people compromised by the enemy in their depravity, and he, Jesus, cast out the spirits, I love this, with a word. It's not a wrestling match, it's a word. 
because he has absolute power and potency over them. You remember when the disciples couldn't cast out the demon that was harassing a father's son. And the father says, your disciples couldn't cure them. And Jesus says, bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Jesus has absolute authority. Jesus has control over the enemy and everything related to him. This passage offers undeniable hope in the person and authority of Jesus Christ. That's why Tom read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. I pray, Paul said, that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, which means that you can see what you haven't seen. You can understand what you haven't come to understand. I want you, through the knowledge of God and the revelation of His Son, through His Word, to know things that are essential that you might flourish and enjoy the abundance and the blessing that is in the work of Jesus Christ. You enjoy spiritual blessings manifold in heavenly places. you got to know the hope of your calling, the hope of a new beginning, the hope of a guaranteed happy ending, the hope of your calling, which is the guarantee of presently changing sanctification. I want you to know about the riches the glory of the riches that are yours in your inheritance. And I want you to know the surpassing greatness of the power made available to us who believe. What kind of power is that? It's the power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the grave. It's the power that defeats death. It's the power that brings life. And it's the power that seats him over every other power, every other authority, makes everything subject to him. He's the head. We, the church, are filled up with his power and his authority. We have the capacity to bear a witness of dynamic, transformational power through the gospel and person of Jesus Christ. We have it. We need to own it because he's given it and he possesses it. Can you say amen to that? I know this is Grace Church. But this is about one who can liberate anybody. He not only has authority over everything, he's the one, if God be for us, who can be against us? Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. Jesus liberates. That's the second big idea. He has authority, and with that authority, he sets people free. Listen, this passage offers undeniable hope in the person and authority of Jesus Christ. It says that he controls darkness and demons. They do not control him. They must submit to his authority. And when that authority of Jesus Christ by his word and his spirit comes to bear on deep darkness or demonically inspired circumstances and situations, the enemy must comply. The fact is that through the sovereign Son of God, you have hope, you have authority, because you possess position in Christ. And if you can invite someone to know Him, repent and believe, and be united with Him, they are liberated. They are set free. The oppressed, the governed, the dominated, those living in death. I believe the force of this passage is to make clear that like the powerful storm, there is no force of nature or power of evil from which Jesus is not able to deliver. The clear implication of this passage is that if Jesus can deliver a person this dysfunctional, this demonized, he can deliver anybody. If he can do a legion, he can do a few. And if he can do a few, he can do one. And if he can do a few or a one, he can deliver you from none. The depravity that controls your human journey. Jesus can deliver you. 
He can deliver from any storm, any enemy, seen or unseen, anyone, anywhere, any time. Mark chapter 1, any time, in a synagogue, on the Sabbath. That's not going to be a problem. Even after so many days, 18 years, Luke's gospel chapter 13, for 18 years, a woman had a sickness caused by a demon, a spirit. She was bent over double. She could not straighten up at all. Again, on the Sabbath, woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands upon her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. I don't care where you are. I don't care how long it's been. I don't care what day it is or circumstance, how many. Jesus is a restorer. He is the deliverer. Grace sang it. He alone has the power to redeem. That's the message of this story. Mark 1, 32, and when evening had come, the beginning of his ministry, after the sun had set, they began bringing to Jesus all who were ill, all those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered at the door. This is a crowd. It's a multitude, demon-possessed and sick. He healed many. That's all, because there were a lot of them. It's not like he healed some of them and not others of them. No, there were many, and he healed them all from various diseases, and he cast out many demons. All who came, all were helped. And he, by his power, was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was, because he was not wanting to usher in the end until the time had come. If the Son shall make you free, Jesus says, of himself, you shall be free indeed. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Jesus, verse 15, Mark 5, heals. He restores. Look at this man, verse 15. Everybody's coming out to see what had happened. This is what they see. They came and observed the man. I mean, they took a good hard look at him. It's not just a glance. The word observed is they scrutinized him. And what they observe is the man who had been so violent, naked, unruly, here and there, insane, antisocial. That man, verse 15, who had been demon-possessed, they found him sitting down, not restless, not moving, transformed, calm. They found him clothed. He hadn't worn clothes in a long time. That has to do with a transformed life, outwardly inwardly transformed, calm, and he's sitting. For the first time in who knows how long, he's able to rest, and he's resting at the feet of his rescuer. That's what they saw. And the tragedy of this story is what they saw frightened them, and they begged Jesus to leave. Because your presence cost too much economically. Those 2,000 swine, we needed them. What you do and how you do it is uncomfortable to us. It's ironic and it's sad that the ones who would appear to not need help never got help. And the one who needed help got everything he needed. Let me close with this. This is the path. This is any man's path to rescue and restoration. Do what he did. Believe in him. Run to him and submit to him. The demoniac, verse 2, he came out, when Jesus came out of the boat, the man from the tombs came to meet him. He ran to him. Notice what it says in verse 6. Seeing Jesus, he ran up to him. Two things I find. First of all, I don't, I don't know who's going to argue that demons wanted to meet Jesus. They know who he is. They know what he can do. Oh, let's run to him. I'm going to argue that despite all of the compromise, the man was so desperate 
to get what he didn't have. He ran to meet Jesus. And that's the starting point for relief and rescue. I'm so desperate. I so recognize there's a solution and no other. I'm running to him. I don't have any solutions. My life is so out of control, so dominated, so compromised, so destructive. Because I believe I need what I don't have. And Jesus possesses it. Jesus made an interesting statement in John 6. He said of those who the Father gives him, they come to him. This man came to Jesus. The activity of grace in God. And Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I won't cast out. I don't care who they are. I don't care how they are. You don't run to someone you don't trust. And trust is essential. Belief is essential. Look, the demons recognized he is who he says he is. They know he can do what he can do. That's the pathway to healing. Jesus put it this way, or John put it this way, in John chapter 1, verse 12. After it rehearsed, Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, eternal, divine. This Word has power. In Him was life. He creates all life. He is life. And He is the light of the world. And He came unto His own. And they didn't receive him. They didn't welcome him. They didn't acknowledge him. They didn't recognize him. But then John says this. And this is what deliverance involves. To as many as receive him. Now the word receive is a beautiful word. It's dekamai. It means to welcome. It's like opening up the door and saying, come on in. And you know who you're inviting in. You don't just open your door to anybody. And what has just been rehearsed about Jesus is, this is God. This is the life giver. This is the light bringer. This is the creator. This is the Lord of everything. To as many as open the door wide and welcome him in. John says he gives the power, the authority, the capacity to become the sons of God. Participle, even to those who believe in his name. Believing in who he is, what he represents, and the work that he can do, and the gospel of the work he has done. Run to him. Receive him. Believe in him and submit to him. He is the Lord of everything. Follow him. Come to him. Trust him. Follow him. It would sound like this in the little epistle of James, and I'll I'll close with this. James 4, verse 7. Real Christianity. Submit, therefore, to God. Hupotasso, arrange yourself under the Lord's leadership. Resist the devil. I'm talking to believers today, right now. If you're demonized and unsaved, run to the Savior. He can deliver you. I don't care how dark, how hopeless. If you're a saved person, you can be oppressed by the enemy's presence and power through open doors and activities. You can be assaulted through realities, and you can find freedom. And here it is. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. means to stand against him, speak the truth, believe the truth, live by faith, and he will flee from you. Listen, you don't cast out demons. You resist them in the truth. It's a truth encounter. The charismatics say it's a power encounter. My power is bigger than your power. Well, it is. But it's not the leverage of power. It's the encounter of truth. It's true, I declare it, I confess it, I confess with my mouth, I believe it in my heart. Not just that he's resurrected, but he's Lord of it all and he can deliver me from it all. The gospel is transformational. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. 
Cleanse your hands from unholy actions. Purify your hearts from unholy thoughts. Don't be double-minded. You double-minded. I'm in. I'm not in. I'm here. I'm there. Freedom comes when you stand strong in the truth. Cleansed hands. Purified heart. Repentant. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter, and I take that to be the laughter of living in my sin and the foolishness associated with it. Repentance always involves sorrow, mourn, be miserable, weep, not because I'm hopeless, but because my sin has exposed me and limited me and injured me. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. The word bow is this word. Get your face on the ground. Psalm 2, kiss the Son. Submit to His authority. Recognize His divinity. Recognize His Lordship. And He will, in that humility, do what for you? He will exalt you. Not the decline of darkness, but the elevation of restored righteousness. 2010, 15 years after that home encounter, the woman I described, after learning how to facilitate her health and healing, watching her look me in the eye. By the way, demonically oppressed people cannot keep your eye. They have a will and they can do it. The enemy is a distractor. Get them to look you in the eye and confess because they can. The reality of this rescuer who alone saves. She declared her confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. She renounced the lies that had governed and gained control of her life. And I watched a woman with boiling hate in her eyes have the sweetest tenderness and tears in those eyes. Not the tears of anguish and pain, but the tears of relief. Remember what Jesus said in the synagogue at the beginning of his ministry? He picked up the scroll of Isaiah. Recovery, relief, and release for prisoners. The day of the Lord, the day of jubilee, the day of liberation, because of the relief and release and recovery that's in me, this is a joy-filled day. That's what I saw, a joy-filled day. And then Jesus sat down and said, today, in the hearing of these words, today, this has been fulfilled because I'm the fulfillment of all recovery, all release, all relief, and I have the ability to bring joy where no joy has been. She did it. She testified to it. And then in 2010, in front of the church that she became a part of, she stood up in an aisle like this, and she told everybody what that demonized man set free told, what great things God has done for me. And what he did for me, he can do for you. I had the privilege of doing her funeral several years later. I had the privilege of baptizing her. Oh, that's not a story with authority. It's just a validating story that comes from the revelation of authority. There's hope and there's help. And it's in the person of Jesus Christ to all who believe, run to him, receive him, and submit to him. Can you say amen to that? Father, thank you for the great joy of elevating the one who is worthy. And Lord, we can discount and we can diminish some of the things that are so real. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to approach it. And Lord, I'm just praying today that the liberation this man enjoyed, we will enjoy through the person and work of Jesus Christ and the truth that is revealed in him through his word. And I pray for anyone listening, wherever they are, no matter how compromised and broken, 
I pray that you would bring liberating help in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who loved us, came to earth to display God to us, assumed the debt of humanity for all those who would believe and, and endured the cross, paying a price we couldn't pay and offering a gift we cannot earn. And by faith, I pray that there would be freedom and life and help to the one who will believe Jesus is who he says he is. And he can do what he did in this passage. And he promises to do for all who believe, trust, and follow. That's my prayer. Make us good agents of that amazing grace and that unmerited mercy. For us all, I pray it in the matchless name of the rescuer, Jesus Christ the righteous. And all God's people said, amen.